Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. I am Cathy Jacobs, President of the ACOI, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. Historians think that the term money laundering originated from the Italian mafia, specifically Al Capone. During the 1920s and 30s, Capone and his associates would buy laundromats to mask profits made from illegal activities such as prostitution and selling bootlegged liquor. Anti-money laundering as we know it was born in 1989 when the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development established the Financial Action Task Force or FATF as it recognised the need for coordination across borders and a stronger response to organised crime and especially drug dealing. AML law began in 1990 with the 40 recommendations published as the International Standards on Combating Money Laundering and the Financing of Terrorism and proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. These 40 recommendations were augmented after 9-11 with the nine special recommendations and FATF is still the foremost standard setter in AML today and the global standard setter as the ways of moving money is revolutionised by technology. In the European Union, we have had five, about to become six, AML directives and in Ireland, several criminal justice acts to address domestically. With the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime estimate that between 2 and 5% of global GDP is laundered each year. That's between 715 billion euro and 1.87 trillion each year. Money laundering is a financial crime that relies on stealth and flying under the radar. Understandably, detection poses a significant challenge in this field and AML professionals are the front line of combating the social and economic evil. I am delighted to welcome as a guest today, Stephen Hudson, Deputy Money Laundering Reporting Officer at Permanent TSB. Stephen began his career in financial services as a financial planning consultant in a Dublin-based brokerage in the late noughties. After a number of AML CFT-specific roles across operations and compliance in Standard Life International, Citibank and State Street, Stephen joined the central bank as an AML supervisor, where among other things, his focus was inspecting, challenging and guiding financial institutions in their adherence to the Irish AML legislation and implementing AML risk management processes. After returning to the private sector as Deputy MRO in Permanent TSB, Stephen's primary responsibility is the second line oversight of the design and operational effectiveness of the bank's AML CFT sanctions framework. Stephen is here to discuss with me today the importance of firm-wide AML frameworks and the role of the compliance professional and the role of the first line of defence in managing AML risk. Stephen, welcome to the Compliance Files podcast and thanks for talking to us today. Thanks so much, Cathy. Thanks for inviting me on. Great to be here. Okay, Stephen, we'll start with your own career. And how did you get into AML and CFT as a career? And what drew you to it? Yeah, well, as you said in your introduction, um, I've been working in AML, financial crime compliance, for just over 13 years now. And I sort of fell into it, to be honest, from a role in a, in a Dublin brokerage to a role in operations, servicing international investments through Standard Life. And from there, I, I established you know good understanding of the risk. And to be quite honest, uh, you know, I thought it was a really interesting aspect of financial services that at the time was only really starting to become more and more prevalent in terms of firms' understanding of money laundering and terrorist financing. So I think it was a case of being in the right place at the right time. And I suppose what, what has led me to remain fascinated is you know, what we've seen is the global repercussions of failures of huge financial institutions um, in either adhering to AML legislation or implementing strong 
financial crime frameworks or some of the scandals that have become more mainstream news over the last two or three years and you know especially in the Nordics. And what do you find most interesting about it as a career option? Yeah I, I think it's a thoroughly interesting career option. Traditionally when we think about the various aspects of financial services industry we think about you know credit, lending practices, customer and conduct risks and processes whereas more and more we're now seeing that financial crime and in particular money laundering is becoming a major consideration for firms and indeed a material risk in particular for the higher risk firms for instance you know the retail banks the payment institutions the money remitters and this is you know primarily because of the various AML CFT breaches of legislation or actual instances of firms facilitating money laundering um you know we have also seen that firms have been fined globally you know a total of more than 9 billion dollars in 2020 and 8 billion in in 2019 and from this it's quite clear that these risks are you know they're very prevalent within institutions around the world as well of course remaining high uh, on the supervisory agenda for all competent authorities including the central bank of ireland so there's never been a, a more important time i think to work in a role which is responsible for financial crime prevention be it you know in the first line in an operations role or indeed in the second line uh, role, a compliance-based role, providing advice and guidance on financial crime compliance matters. Uh, you know, unfortunately, financial crime, it, it's not something that's going to go away in time. And indeed, as criminals become more and more sophisticated uh, and innovative, there will always be a requirement for financial crime practitioners. Just zooming out and trying to see the big picture here, why why would we want to regulate the flow of monies? And, and what is the what is the broader context for, for AML regulation? What is the big argument for it? Well, I think, that, you know, the, the old saying, money makes the world go round, you know, it's certainly true today more than ever, but it's even more relevant when it comes to money laundering. And by money laundering, you know, we're talking about illegal drug smuggling, human trafficking, organized crime, theft and burglary, cybercrime. You know, the list is endless. And all of these illegal activities will in some way involve money laundering. You know, attempts to place the illicit gain through the financial system, cleaning it, getting it back out in some way to use as they wish. So I know you mentioned earlier in your introduction, you know, but the average flow of, of you know, uh, money laundering on a global scale is estimated to be up to two trillion euro. You know, these are staggering amounts of illicit monies. Um, also, terrorist financing, which is probably just as important. The collection of funds, usually very legitimate for the sole purpose of funding terrorism, be it domestically or internationally. And they are all getting through the financial system in some way. You know, we've heard time and time again from the Central Bank of Ireland with enforcement notices that banks, they are seen as gateways to the international financial system. And because of this, it unfortunately makes money laundering more and more prevalent in these sectors. So in terms of why regulate it then, you know, and and get the legislation written, you know, legislation is written to help manage these issues. So at a European level, by implementing directives and transposing this into legislation at a national level, it's giving each country, its competent authorities and financial institutions, the minimum requirements that must be adhered to in order to give each country the best chance of success in managing money laundering and terrorist financing. Making sure the crime doesn't pay. Okay, so turning to frameworks and how firms manage their AML risks and CFT risks, what do you see as the importance of an AML CFT sanctions framework generally and why are they important? So I think first and foremost, you know, it's a legal requirement um, and you can't get away from that. So it's it's written into legislation that firms must have policies and procedures in place regarding AML CFT. And we We've seen from regulatory inspections and reports issued that the presence of an effective AML, CFT and sanctions framework is very much a minimum requirement when it comes to the Central Bank of Ireland or indeed any competent authorities' expectations. But more than this, you know, if a firm has an effective AML 
CFT framework, it does make a significant difference in helping to manage financial crime risk. And, you know, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Could you give our listeners a sketch of what you think are the elements of an effective AML CFT sanctions framework? Yeah, certainly. So whenever I talk to anyone about this, um, I, I like to break it down and compare it to building and constructing the layers of a house from scratch, you know, brand new from the roof to the floors, you know, uh, to the walls, the foundation. So when we think about the different elements of what make an effective AML framework, it's the sum of all the parts collectively that will bring you that effectiveness piece that we're talking about. And effectiveness is the key word here. So there's no point in having a tick box AML framework that's just in place to appease a regulator or your board or sit on a shelf collecting dust. All of the elements um, of the AML framework have to work together and integrate, much like building a house. So for instance, if the foundations of the walls and the roof aren't stable, then the house is going to fall down. And it's very similar to an AML framework. So there's a number of different uh, elements of, of an AML framework. Um, and I'll go through them very quickly. So, you know, the first is the the, the AML CFT risk assessment. And it's, it's the main form of protection for a firm against money laundering terrorist financing. And it helps the firm identify firms, you know, their, their money laundering terrorist financing risks or gaps, as well as identifying any actions that need to be in place to mitigate that risk. And it's probably the most important process that a firm will go through when it comes to fighting um, against money laundering and terrorist financing. Um, the next stage that typically follows is the AML policy. So that's, this sets out your risk appetite or your tolerance that the firm has against money laundering and terrorist financing. And it's going to document at a very high level what the process in place is to manage these risks. And it's, it's kind of like a mission statement. Um, and then following this, you'll typically have a standards document. Now, this is a very much a, a detailed document than a policy. And it sets out the minimum requirements or expectations that must be followed across a firm when drafting and implementing you know, your first line procedures. So for instance, your STO reporting, your CDD, your monitoring, your, um, you know, both transactional and, and uh, ongoing, your MI reporting, your record keeping and training. Now, I suppose it's important to say for your listeners that depending on the nature, scale and complexity, of the firm may actually not be necessary to implement a detailed standards document and the firm may decide that they will only have an overarching policy that feeds into its various first-line procedures. So for instance, you know, a higher risk firm like a credit or financial institution is far more likely to need to have a detailed standards document as they have far more processes, far more risks and far broader first-line business areas. This is in comparison maybe to a lower risk firm like a life assurance company or a retail intermediary or a TCSP, a trust and company service provider. Um, in regards to the first line procedures there, uh, you know, where a firm has many different first line areas, for instance, customer services, new business, finance, treasury, commercial, they'll typically draft their first line procedures from the standards or, you know, as we talked about from the policy as well, and very much in a way that's relevant to their business area. The next pillar then, you know, our element is, is, your, is your reporting. And by that, I mean, you know, your, your KRIs, your key risk indicators, your regular, regular reporting on AML controls, and of course, the annual AMLO report. Training is another critical element of, of an AML framework. So the annual AML training, which is typically done via computer-based, as well as the board training, which should be designed around the roles and responsibilities of the board, as they have overall responsibility for AML and firm. And it's expected that it's more detailed and specific. So in addition, for, for any you know, higher-risk firms, it's important to ensure that if there are any business areas that have potentially more responsibility for AML than others, that perhaps there's more frequent and targeted training for these areas. Um, the next item, you know, uh, is the implementation and maturity of a three lines of defense model. 
So, you know, when we talk about a three lines of defense model, what do we actually mean? So a, a firm's operational areas are, are their first line. So they are responsible for the day-to-day management of the AML and firm. So they own the risk and operate the controls to help mitigate the risk. The second line then are the compliance area, and they're responsible for providing oversight and challenge to the first line areas in how they are managing the risk as well as guidance and advice, especially to senior management of the board. And in the third line are your internal audit division. And this is particularly prevalent for, you know, your larger firms. And the third line are responsible for testing first line business uh, AML processes as, and, and ensuring that your second line compliance department are applying the correct level of monitoring and oversight, um, and guidance and advice. And then the final critical piece of an effective framework is really your governance. And by that, I mean two distinct things. So firstly, what is the frequency and level at which the majority of these pillars of the framework are subject to review and approval by senior management uh, or the board? And then secondly, you know, what is the frequency and depth at which AML and broader financial crime matters are discussed at that level? So the reason for this is is, is quite simple, really. So the, the board and their committees, you know, hold overall responsibility and accountability for the management of AML in the firm. And if they're not being made aware, you know, emerging financial crime risks or trends or as well as regular regular reviewing risk assessments and policies, then how can they ultimately be comfortable that their firm are managing financial crime risk appropriately and effectively? So AML, CFT, sanctions risk, it really is a big part of the ecosystem in a financial services firm, really from the minute a customer comes in the door right up to board reporting. So what are the common pitfalls that you saw maybe when you were working in in, in the regulator in the central bank in designing and implementing the frameworks? Where did they fall down? What were the what the common mistakes? Yeah, sure. So, you know, in my time at the central bank, my, my role involved inspecting firms compliance to the Criminal Justice Act. So I would have inspected all types of firms and sectors from retail and wholesale banks to payment institutions to money remitters to fund service providers and life and pension investment providers. And I suppose they all have different elements of risk attached to them from a, from a financial crime perspective. And, you know, when I think back about it, um, there's probably three common threads of where I found the firms were found to be lacking and required improvement. The first is, is governance. So going back to what I mentioned earlier, about accountability and responsibility at board and senior management level for AML. You know, not only is it critically important, but it's one of the main ways of being able to demonstrate back to the regulator the seriousness at which financial crime risk is taken at the highest levels within your firm and the level of engagement that's happening at that level. So the central bank is looking. They want to see that the boards and senior management are being proactive in managing financial crime risk and they're not reacting to any issues or concerns that may arise. The next common thread is kind of risk assessments. So again, as I mentioned earlier, it's probably the most important AML document in a firm for helping to manage financial crime risk. And because of this, it is one of the main areas of focus for all company authorities. So if a firm falls down on this during inspection, it's most likely because it's simply not detailed enough and doesn't account for all AML risks or financial crime risks. And it's very evident when it's a tick box exercise. It's very much a once-off exercise and it's not proactively updated in a regular manner. It doesn't align back to the policy of the risk appetite that we spoke about earlier. And the final common thread, and for me, it's up there with the risk assessment in terms of um, importance, is you know a mature three lines of defense model. And by that, I mean a model at which you know each area of the bank is functioning as expected 
respected and that their roles and responsibilities are clearly defined and accepted and agreed. And a common pitfall of this is where, for instance, you have your second line compliance areas performing a lot of first line operational roles. So, you know, when you take a step back and you look at them from a helicopter perspective, if the second line are doing all the first line's work, how can they provide independent oversight and challenge of that particular process? Great. And how does the firm go about correcting some of those issues? So I suppose the good news for, for, for your listeners is that some of these common threads are actually quite straightforward to fix. So particularly around the governance and risk assessment areas. So for risk assessments, there's a, there's a lot of really good documentation and information online that can help with better to understand financial crime risk. So for instance, you know, the European Banking Authority guidance on money loaning and terrorist financing risk factors is a really good start. Or the Central Bank of Ireland's guidance on AML, again, really informative and really helps describe the risk, which is great. And there's also a lot of individual individual sectoral guidance that's been issued by the central bank um, you know, over the last five or six years. So on banking, funds, life insurance, and they're really, really, really useful. And the legislation itself has scheduled three and four. You know, that gives a good understanding uh, uh, and a good starting point for understanding, you know, higher and lower risk factors. The legislation itself, which schedule three and four, gives a good starting point of higher and lower risk factors for money loaning and terrorist financing. If necessary, sometimes you know getting that outside expertise or counsel in to help is something sometimes very good way of being able to tackle these issues and steer you on the right path as well. You're getting the benefit of knowing that you are being recommended. What you're being recommended is broadly aligned to industry as well as obviously managing the risk. However, establishing an effective three lines of defense model, it can be more difficult as it's directly related back to culture within a firm and an appetite to go down this path, particularly in the first line, you know, getting them to, you know, agree, step up and take ownership for AML risk. And I've seen the difference, you know, both working for the regulator and in the private sector between having a three lines of defense model that's established and one where it's quite immature. And the difference really is very tangible and it's very obvious to a regulator. So I suppose there are just some of the key, the key issues that I would have seen as a regulator. How do you get the first line to step up and take their ML responsibilities as seriously as they should? Sure. So I think, you know, from, from my own uh, previous experience, you know, the second line are, are you know, there to, to, you know, help with gap analysis and understanding legislation. But the first line are the ones that really understand the processes that are that, that are in place to help manage the risk. So if you bring them along the journey with you in terms of helping to create new processes, um, and help them or bring them along in terms of the decision making, you are likely to get better buy-in. I think that's really important. It's, it's not just from a second line perspective to have, you know, this teacher pupil analogy of um, the second line told me to do this or compliance told me to do it, so I'm doing it. It's about actually bringing them along the journey with you from, you know, cradle to grave and helping them make the decisions with you so that they feel empowered and part of the, of the, of the actual solution that, that you're coming up with. I think that's really important. Yeah, being positive about the contribution that they're making in, in this effort rather than talking about Absolutely. fines and, and, and like how important is it to the central bank and the regulators that firms have a comprehensive AML CTF sanctions framework? As I mentioned earlier, as part of the central bank's on-site inspection program, you know, they're, they're testing each firm is correctly adhering to the Criminal Justice Act. So a big component of, of whether a firm is ultimately successful in being able to demonstrate this is by having that effective AML, CFT and sanctions framework place and we've seen in the past five or six years that the central bank that you know they haven't been afraid to flex their impact with their enforcement powers where they believe that a firm hasn't quite met the legislative uh, obligations or indeed their expectations 
depending on the risk profile of the firm. So we've seen this, you know, firsthand with fines that have been handed out to retail banks, money remittance, or even credit unions. And certainly, you know, I think it, AML in general is an area that's going to continue to be a sharp focus for the central bank going forward. Yeah, you can see from the fines that they do fine for a comprehensive set of reasons. So can you talk to me about notable challenges and successes that you've had both as a regulator and as deputy MRO? Yeah, so I suppose, uh, you know, I, when I when I first started in the central bank uh, as an inspector, I think starting off, it was a challenge for me. You know, when I came in at the start, it was very apparent that I was surrounded by subject matter experts and, you know, not just operationally from different aspects of AML, but also technically very astute in the legislation. You know, these very qualified individuals. So it took me a bit of time to get up to speed on that front in terms of the technical piece around the legislation. But, you know, it does feel like a great achievement when you get to that level. Um, I think as well, you know, there's a very ambitious AML inspection program in the central bank, and it is warranted for all the reasons that we've discussed, you know, already. And, you know, when you are working in the central bank at any one time, you could be liaising with a number of different firms and AML inspections, you know, their findings, risk mitigation plans. Um, So, you know, at times it was very challenging um, and learning how to manage all of these risks whilst continuing to represent the central bank to the highest possible standard that you could, you know, is is challenging. And I I think, you know, finding that balance um, when working through findings that emanate from an inspection um, and having the clarity over the risks to uh, to make a determination as to whether you perceived that particular risk to be a material failure of a firm and those that perhaps just required noting back to the firm as a kind of an FYI. So it was, it was trying to work with the firm as well, not just to hand them down fines or findings and risk mitigation plans, but sometimes, you know, it can be just as difficult as well to actually work with the firm and, and uh, you know, to try and try and get, get them across the line. It was, it was quite challenging, but again, it's a challenge that I embraced. You know, in my, in my current role, I think, it's, again, it's, it's the art of learning to spin plates. So, you know, any MLRO or deputy MRO or even AML professional who's listening, you know, we always try to endeavor to cover as many issues as possible um, or concerns or, you know, daily business as usual AML matters that occur as soon as they may arise. That's our first go to. However, you know, such is the demands of the role that it's invariably never possible. Right. So it then becomes a case of prioritizing priorities and, you know, your must do list, inverted commas, like that becomes longer and longer. And being able to work and be comfortable in that environment you know, that, that's a challenge. It's something that, you know, we're constantly working on as, as professionals to try and become more comfortable in that environment. But I also think it's one that you, it, once you master, it does become a skill or an asset to you. And I think it goes for all compliance professionals, not just for financial crime, you know, people, uh, you know, employees working in financial crime. But I think for compliance broadly, you know, that's our, that's, that's our, that's our mantra in terms of trying to spin the plates and, and work with the business. So I think, you know, once you do master that, that's that's that challenge it, it does become a skill yeah i mean i would agree that anytime i've interacted with central bank inspectors or regulators they're definitely marked out by their technical mastery actually they, they really are technically really strong and yes even even post crash compliance departments are not overstaffed so it is it is hmm. it is a game of plate spinning and prioritizing and, and reprioritizing that was that was def- I definitely agree with you on, on, on those so turning to, to the future Stephen what regulatory developments should our listeners look out for in the coming month in AML yeah yeah of course yeah so, so the big one on the horizon is obviously the fifth million directive 
So, you know, this, of course, follows the fourth Millennium Directive updates to the Criminal Justice Act that were implemented in 2018 and the 2013 and 2010 updates. And for the fifth Millennium Directive, some of the main updates, you know, they include firms being required now to ensure that their non-personal or corporate customers are on the register of beneficial ownerships. And where there are discrepancies or the customers are not registered, firms are going to be obliged now to report this to the RBO. So operationally, you know, that might present some challenges to firms. Firms are now required to identify any beneficial owner who owns at 25%. So that's that's a current requirement. However, you know, the fifth money, fifth money loaning directive states that the beneficial owner obligations now apply also to senior management officials, including any difficulties encountered in the verification process. So that is, again, another part of, the, uh, of that process that firms need to consider. Virtual currency and Bitcoin providers are now going to become uh, subject to the Criminal Justice Act. So again, this is another high risk in a sector which is now going to fall under the under the criminal justice act and be, be part of a you know um, uh, the supervisory uh, regime for the central bank so um, that'll be interesting to see um, you know how they get on with that and i'm sure we'll see reports come out in terms of updates out to the wider net uh, wider network in terms of uh, expect expectations and what they want what they'd like to see the pep obligations for firms as well are being updated so a firm must continue to apply edd and monitor someone who has previously been de- designated as a pep for as long as a, as the money laundering risk exists in, in connection to the previous role. So currently, um, firms are obliged to apply enhanced due diligence to a PEP only up to 12 months after they leave the position. So now the onus is very much back to the firm to determine, yes, for instance, Cathy Jacob, she's a, uh, a minister, and once she comes, once she leaves the role after 12 months, we're, we're okay. Now it's up to the firm to decide, actually, no, because of this and because of our connections to X, Y, and Z, um, we're going to leave, uh, remain, leave her on the, you know, our high-risk register subject to EDD. So, you know, that, that it is it is something that firms are going to need to start thinking about in terms of it's no longer rules-based, it's now back to risk-based. Yeah. So that's going to be interesting. So a real endorsement and reinforcement of the risk-based approach. And I, I was at a crypto seminar recently and one statistic that they threw out, I'm not sure how accurate this was, but apparently there was $2.9 trillion in crypto transactions in 2020. And they reckoned there was $10 billion in illicit activity in crypto. So that's wow. definitely, definitely one, to, one, one for the future. And looking further into the long term, what do you see as the developments and challenges in the years to come for firms for enhancing their AML frameworks? Yeah, um, I think one very current challenge, you know, uh, that, that currently exists for all firms globally is then that's likely to continue for, for some time, obviously, is the current COVID-19 pandemic and the threat and the upheaval that it's causing for financial institutions um, around the globe. So, you know, when the pandemic hit in Ireland, you know, in terms of lockdown and, and having to, to mobilize the, in March 2020, you know, firms had to adapt very quickly to ensure that, I suppose, the integrity of their AML framework wasn't compromised in any way. So, you know, we're talking about mainly, we're talking about first-line critical business areas having to work from home. So I think it was a huge IT challenge, you know, that the vaccines are coming in and they're, they're, there's, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. But I suppose right now, we're, we're all still very much working from home and we don't we now have a solid date for when we're going to go back into business as usual in terms of our operations. So that is that is a, um, a, a challenge and it continues to be. On a more forward-looking basis, I think, you know, resource risk, both technically and capacity modelling, continued AML budget across firms, 
um, continued upgrading of AML and IT software, transaction monitoring, adapting to new and, and evolving financial prime risk topologies, evolving um, terrorist financing methods. Um, a lot of firms will have and will continue to spend considerable amount of money tackling uh, financial prime, be it more resources in the first line or second line, or upgrading AML systems and IT and external assurance testing, or third-party consultancy advice and guidance. And I think that's a really tangible way of also demonstrating the commitment of a firm and its board to tackle financial crime. You know, I've seen it before, and it does happen, that firms may invest in AML once and in a big way, and then consider the risk mitigated and managed, yeah. and then move on to the next strategy or risk. Well, I think that's really dangerous. Um, and I think we've talked a lot today about the risk of financial crime and that it is a very systemic global issue. And Ireland as well, given its you know central location to Europe and the States, it is seen as a great opportunity for criminals to launder. There's no doubt about that. And it will never be fully extinguished. And criminals are consistently coming up with new ways to launder through the financial services. And it's because of this that it's so important that firms continue to upgrade systems and invest in people and boots on the ground to give itself the best opportunity of mitigating the risk occurring through their institutions. Uh, and I know from experience that this is an area of focus for the Central Bank of Ireland, and it will continue to be. So, for instance, just how committed are the boards and senior managements to tackling financial crime and an ongoing continued investment is a very good way of meeting this challenge. Thanks, Stephen. And just circling back now to, to careers in, in uh, financial crime compliance, what advice would you give anyone seeking to embark on a career in financial crime compliance? How would they go about it and, and what are the rewards? Yeah. So, I mean, for anyone who's thinking about a career in AML or financial crime compliance, I think it's a very interesting and diverse path, career path to choose. You know, so there's there's many aspects of financial crime. It's not just AML. And because of this uh, risk associated not just to financial institutions, but also to the general public. It's a hugely important and rewarding career. So, you know, for those in the second line and a compliance-based role, you're likely to pay to play, you know, a key part in shaping the financial crime compliance framework for your firm, as well as providing advice and guidance to your first-line business area, as well as senior management. And that, that experience is hugely valuable. Um, as you climb the ladder of your career, to have that you know experience to face off against senior management or you know the central bank for inspections, uh, as a second line professional, you're going to get that experience. And because, as we talked about earlier on, you know financial crime, it is a very much a material risk now. It's on the radar for for the vast majority, if not all, firms. If you're working in financial crime compliance in second line, it's going to it's it's a it's a hugely um, advantageous career option for you. You know, from a personal perspective, you know there there are some interesting qualifications out there on financial crime compliance and you know general compliance. You know, you know, and I know they're facilitated through the ACOI, and uh, they certainly helped me. Um, so you know, I I did the LCOI um, professional diploma in compliance, and I've also done the level nine financial crime compliance qualification as well. And you know, both were really um, interesting, uh, and you know, I've been able to take learnings from them and apply them directly to my role. So I think the the rewards are there, um, and the, there's a there's a good career path for someone, even if you get in at a very um, early age um, or already stays in your career in second line. You know, the it's a it's a very um, it's a very exciting career option to choose. Stephen, thank you very much for talking to us today and sharing the insights of your experience as a regulator and bank deputy, Emma Rowe, with the listeners of the Compliance Files podcast. Thank you very much. No problem. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I hope that your listeners can take some hints or tips from our conversation today that will help them in their day-to-day roles. Thanks, Stephen. We are delighted to announce our second new educational offering in 2021. 
the Professional Certificate in Anti-Money Laundering in a Fintech Environment, which commences on the 14th of April. ACOI and Professional Accountancy Training have collaborated on designing a contemporary practitioner-focused course that will provide professionals, practitioners, and other stakeholders with the skills and competencies that support a culture of AML compliance. This course addresses AML requirements from the perspective of a variety of sectors in the context of the technologically driven innovation in financial services. This highly interactive course will be delivered online once a week over 18 evenings by a team of industry professionals from across the fintech ecosystem. Details on the professional certificate can be found on the ACOI website or email us at info at Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.